Good morning, church. What a privilege it is to be here. Thank you, Jack and praise team and two Barry daughters and <clears throat> how cool it is. I just, I can't even explain to you how cool it is to be back here at Orangewood after a 10 year hiatus and to be standing here and have two of my adult daughters uh, and other friends and family on the praise team leading worship. What a, what a privilege, what a praise. And I'm so struck, two songs, I'm, I, I gotta say this. That one song talking about, we're coming, out of our, we're coming out of the grave running to Jesus. And I'm going, how in the world do we ever think that we're beautiful and self-righteous and good and better than all these people? We're just dead people who have just been made alive running in our grave clothes to Jesus. That's what this life is about. We don't, you know, the only beauty we have is the robe of righteousness that because we're alive, we were dead. We were dead in our sins and trespasses and we've been made alive by his grace. And then the other song, um, the one that says, uh, all is lost, begin there, begin there. That's where it all begins. When you've come to the realization that in and of yourself, you have no self-sufficiency, no adequacy, no ability in and of yourself to glorify or honor God, it all has to come from him and it comes through him and it never, it never comes to us any other way. We don't ever arrive at these plateaus where, well, now I've got my own power supply and I can depend on that. Nope, that's not how it works. It's not how it works. Jesus is always our power supply, always. And he's the all-powerful one. God is all-powerful. Pete's got us in this series, and it's awesome. I'm really enjoying looking at the, these attributes of who God is and how God is and how we plug in to his attributes in such a way that we ourselves become shining power sources, not of ourselves, but of him. And today we're going to look at a story in, in the Gospels, an event, a historical event that, that I love, and I'm I love even more now, having spent more time in it, and it's in Matthew 14. But I want to, uh, just as an introduction before we jump into the Gospels, uh, in moving back from Boone, North Carolina to Florida, we have a 13-year-old, and, and this morning is my, my youngest daughter's birthday. She is 13, and uh, so shout out, Ellie, you're 13. I can't believe my youngest daughter's a teenager. So uh, it's pretty awesome. But in moving to Florida, Ellie was like, I don't want to move to Florida. I don't want to go to Florida. Why, Ellie? Hurricanes. I don't want to go somewhere where hurricanes come barreling out of the Caribbean and cross the state and trees come down and powers out. And, you know, this is scary. I don't want to go to Florida. And, uh, and it's kind of funny because if you live in Florida and if, or if you have lived in Florida, and especially if you were raised and born in Florida, you know, you hear a hurricane's coming, and what do you do? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> but, but listen, you've learned. You've learned through storm after storm after storm. You've learned how to not be fearful when you hear that a storm is coming. And really, there's two kinds of storms, and there's lots of kinds of storms, but two general categories of storms here, correct? There's the big, massive ones you know, and some of them are more massive than others. And I remembered huddled in a house and we lived 
next to the creeches over on Tudor Circle, and we had a mattress up against, I think we were in Ellie's bedroom, we had a mattress up against Ellie's bedroom, we were listening to the emergency radio, and we heard this report that there was a 100-mile-an-hour wind gust at the Orlando airport, and Charlie was coming, you know, and we were listening to the wind and hearing things knock and bump outside, and anyway... Now they're like fond stories of our past. <laughs> and so you have hurricanes and they're, I love, you know, it's funny because in Boone it was the same way. Weather has a way of, weather events, we, we always looked forward to weather events. Why is that? You probably do too in a weird way. We are so stinking busy that the only time we feel okay about stopping is when there's some major weather event that prevents everyone from going to work. So now we give ourselves the freedom to rest and relax, right? And in Boone, it was the same way. The second winter, the Barry family went to Boone. The second winter we were there, 115 inches of snow. And we had two rear, two front-wheel drive cars. And uh, anyway, but we loved snowstorms in Boone. Why? Because it was like this big, white, soft blanket would fall on the city and everybody would stop and gave everyone else permission to stop. And you could, like, catch your breath. It's kind of sad that it takes a weather event. Jesus gave us Sundays, weekly events, to Sabbath. And then he gives us the privilege and opportunity to stop on a daily basis and get with him and rest with him and listen to him. Do we take advantage of that? We have trouble there. So there's that. There's hurricanes. And then the much more common one are the severe thunderstorms, right? Right? which like in this time of the year, it's like every day is, you know, we have severe, you know, cloud to ground lightning probability today, 70%. You know, it's like, what's that? You know, and that was another weird thing because in Boone, we didn't have very many thunderstorms and I kind of had forgotten what it was like. Um, And uh, man, those things, those big thunder bumpers, they jar you when, when they hit and you're not really expecting But listen, it's no big deal to us in a sense. Why? Because we've learned. We learn through repetition, do we not? And and we learn from, from having to deal with the storms, with practice. We learn not to freak out. We learn ways to deal honestly and realistically uh, with the storms and, and we live and we learn through them. So what are the three real quick techniques we do for, for, for just weather storms? We watch and listen, right? We're on TV, we're on our phones, we're checking the weather radar, we got a hurricane, I got a hurricane app again on my phone now after 10 years. Didn't need one in Boone, but I got one now. And, uh, and we, we watch and we listen. And then what do we do? We learn how to get properly prepared. So we gather the, the things we can gather. We might even go to the extent of boarding up our windows, which we did once you know, during that same summer when Charlie and Wilma and all those storms came through. Plywood, plywooded up all the windows on my house. Um, we get prepared as best we can. And then we, what do we do? We do, we hope for the best and we pray. We ask, why are we praying? Because we're not in control of these storms, are we? We can't control them one iota. But we know one who does and who can, and so we pray. And maybe we do, you know, maybe we, we hope for the best and then we pray. You know, it's the other way around. Let's pray first and then hope for the best and just trust God with the results. But that's the second thing we do. And then what do we do? Then we act as necessary in the midst of the storm, right? So we watch and we listen. We prepare as best we can. We hope and we pray. 
And then when the storm comes, we act. Whatever the storm brings, we do the best we can. We act and we entrust ourselves to God in the middle of the storm, not knowing how it's going to work out. So listen, physical storms are good analogies for trials and troubles in life. Orangewood, are we in a storm? Kind of. Yes, we are. We're in a storm. Should it surprise us? Really, it shouldn't surprise us. The church is kind of God's fortress, God's lighthouse in the world. Why? Because there's going to be storms. And even Jesus told his disciples, and he tells us in his word, life is full of storms, full of trouble, full of trials. It's full, Jesus said. He didn't say, oh, once every five in a lifetime, ten. No, it's full, full of trouble, Jesus said. So if you want to kind of like equate, use the analogy of a storm to trouble. And what's interesting is, is Jesus has several times when his training and preparation of the disciples allowed his disciples into storm settings. And we're going to look at one of those today. So let's kind of jump in. All right. Let me pray before we read the word. And then, then we're going to jump in. Chris, when he handed me the microphone this morning... Um, I was asking him about the microphone, and Chris, you might have to refresh my memory, but he said a very pithy little phrase. I said, I said, I don't have to do anything with the microphone, right? I just need to put it on. He said, yeah, put it on and speak truth. And I'm like, oh, thanks. You know, in my heart, I'm going, yeah, that's the pressure that I'm under this morning as your preacher. I get to come up here and speak truth. Lord, let's pray. <clears throat> Father God, I, I am Lazarus. I've got burial strips hanging all off of me. I stink, but I'm alive, and I'm alive in Christ. And Lord, I am running to you, tripping sometimes, sometimes falling, Father. But I'm coming because you are drawing, and I am so grateful for that. So Father, I pray this morning, now, by your Holy Spirit, that you would come and invade this place, invade our hearts, open doors that we even have locked, kick them down, open, come, have your way with us, have your way in our heads, have your way in our hearts, and Lord, in our wills, so that we will move our feet and our hands and our tongues in such a way after our time with you this morning, in such a way that we would live a more surrendered more sacrificial, certainly more humble, and much more dependent lives. Father, use our storms, both collectively and individually, to help us see Jesus more clearly and more impactfully. Thank you. Come now, speak through me, Father, but not my words, your words. Allow by your spirit each person here to hear your words and your teaching for them, for us as a church. And we commit this to you in Christ's name, amen. All right, Matthew 14, beginning at verse 22. Immediately he, Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. 
When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart. It is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. He, Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased and those in the boat worshiped him saying, truly, you are the son of God. And when they'd crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret. And when the men at that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Hear the reading of God's holy and powerful word. May it cut to the quick in my heart, in my soul, in your heart, your soul. And may the Holy Spirit teach us and transform us this morning. So let me give you some context. Because the text starts out as, it starts out kind of weird. It says, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. What just happened? What just happened is another miracle that you're probably pretty familiar with, and that's the feeding of the 5,000. But I, in my study this week, I noticed some things about this that, are, that make these events much more real, much more honest. Uh, it makes the word more, much more believable, okay? And it's this. The reason Jesus was coming across to this lonely place was because Jesus and his disciples had just learned that John the Baptist had been beheaded. This is Jesus' cousin. These were contemporaries. These were probably also, there was probably a blending of communities between Jesus and his followers and John the Baptist and his followers. And Jesus and his followers have just learned that John the Baptist is dead. They knew he was in prison, but now they've learned that he's dead. This is the forerunner of Jesus. This is the first human being to react to the physical presence of Jesus. Remember the child in Elizabeth's womb, the child in Mary's womb, when they came together, the babies yet to be born responded to one another. And now John is dead. So how do you think the disciples are feeling? How do you think Jesus is feeling? Grief, loss. Anybody in here feel grief for loss lately, recently, any time in your life? Can you connect with that? And why does Jesus, Jesus gathers his disciples, they get in the boat. Why does he want to go across the Sea of Galilee to a desolate place? Because he knows what he needs and they need. They need some alone time. 
They need to get away from busy ministry, busy life. They need to pull out, pull away. And Jesus always, always makes time for that. For himself, he does that. He's not being selfish because he absolutely needs it. And he knows his disciples need it and he wants to train them how to make that a priority in their life. So they cross the Sea of Galilee to the other side. But something has been happening. Jesus has been teaching and Jesus has been doing miracles. And the people see Jesus get in the boat with his disciples and begin to cross. And many of them on foot are going around the Sea of Galilee to get wherever Jesus is going because they want more of him. They want to hear him teach with authority because that's what's different about his teaching from anyone else they've ever heard. And he has the ability to heal. He has the ability, the ability to heal lepers. He has the ability to make the lame whole. He has the ability to make the blind see. He even has the ability to raise the dead. No one is like this Jesus. And so by the time they get across the Sea of Galilee to where they're trying to get to a desolate place, the desolate place is filled with people. Okay? So that's some of this context. It's filled with people. So what does Jesus do? Hey, we need to be alone. Y'all go home. No, that's not what he does. He sees them. He feels their plight, their sheep without a shepherd, they're harassed, they're distressed of spirit and some of body. He sees them, he feels compassion, and then he moves in to act, to help. And so even though he needs a break and his disciples need a break, he's met by this crowd, they have a need, he doesn't send them away, he leans in. And draws from his father more power, more strength, more energy, and expects his disciples to do the same. And what do they do? Ministry. And he teaches with authority, and he heals. And then the day is coming to a close. And the disciples come to Jesus and say, Jesus, there's like thousands of people here. We're in a kind of a desolate place. There aren't a lot of towns. There's, you know, you need to send them home. They're hungry. They need to eat. They haven't eaten. We haven't eaten. Send them away. And then Jesus, man, Jesus does something. Jesus turns to the disciples. And in the other gospels, there's a couple, uh, 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 Philip and Andrew seem to be focused, focused out. But he basically turns to his disciples and he says, we don't need to send them away to feed them. You give them something to eat. What has he just done? Jesus has just created a crisis. Jesus, I thought you're like the man of peace and you're supposed to make me content and protect me and put the little bubble around me so storms don't get in and I don't get undone and I'm not bothered by life. I'm supposed, you know, you're supposed to protect me. You love me, right? So don't put me in any uncomfortable situations. That's not the Christian life. They were distraught and probably weary before they even got there. And then Jesus called them to more ministry. 
And then he lays this immense need with scarce resources on their shoulders. You give them something to eat. I think it's Philip who says, 200 denarii, 200 days wages, would only give everybody a little morsel. So he's, uh, he's coming undone. He's looking at it very logically, which is not a bad thing, right? Hurricane's coming, you look at it very logically. We need water, we need toilet paper, we need, you know. <laughs> but if that's all you do, if that's the only way you can look at things from a worldly materialistic point of view, then you're missing the much bigger story going on. And he said, you give him something to eat. And Andrew, I love it, Andrew. He's like, well, this boy has five bread cakes and two fish, but that surely can't solve this need. <laughs> and we know what happens, don't we? Jesus takes what they have. And what does he do with it? He takes matter and he multiplies it. Who can do that? Who can take matter and make more matter out of, out of nothing? Uh, you know, five bread, two fish. Who can feed? And there probably wasn't 5,000 people there. There were 5,000 men. So we're probably looking at between six and 10,000 people. And he takes five loaves, two fish. You know the story. Gives thanks, breaks it up into pieces, and the disciples have to hand it out. You know, can't you, can't you just imagine what's going on? These people are going to kill me when I hand them the basket and it's empty. Well, what happens? They keep handing the basket around and it's never empty. That's the miracle, right? And then I love it because Jesus has the disciples participate in his miracle. And one of the things we know that they did after they fed the 5,000, he asked them, collect the leftovers. Leftovers? What are you talking about? Couldn't Jesus have created the exact amount that they needed so there was nothing left over, but everybody got fed. That would have been a pretty cool miracle. No, there's leftovers. Guess how many disciples are serving with Jesus? Twelve. Guess how many baskets full of leftovers there are left? Twelve. And I can see him just go collect the leftovers. Each guy's got a basket, you know. And at the end, you know, like our ushers, they all come down and stand here together, you know, and they're all standing there together with Jesus going, whoa, they're each holding a full basket. I think Jesus did that for them. Don't you think? So what does Jesus do? He creates a crisis whereby your sufficiency, your adequacy, your abilities can't meet the need, not even come close. You're you're wanting to run because you don't even want to act like you have any idea how to solve this problem. Send them away, Jesus. We don't want their hunger to be on us. Don't let that be on us. He said, you feed them. But what did he mean by you feed them? You feed them with me. Get that? John 6 is a parallel passage of Matthew 14. John 6 is also where he says... I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. So there's the context. So now the group is fed, right? Full, full tummies, we're good. And Jesus says, disciples, get in the boat, go across. The crowd's still there. You know, they're wiping their mouths, you know. They're still there. 
but they're satisfied. But they're thinking. You know what they're thinking? This is the Messiah. He's ushering in a kingdom. Rome has us under their thumb. I want to be under this guy's rule. Let's make him king now. Let's carry him on our shoulders, march to Jerusalem, claim he's our king. So what does Jesus do? Before they, he knows that's going on in the mob. And we're learning a lot these days about mob rule. Mob rule can be powerful. There's power in a mob. It's usually misaligned. So Jesus gets his disciples away from the mob, tells them to get into a boat, start rowing. What time is it? It's evening. Somewhere between 7 and 9 p.m. most likely. So these 12 guys get into a fishing boat. Remember, at least four of them are professionals. They know this sea. They know the boat. They know about oars. They know about weather. They know, they know about fishing all night. No big deal. We got this. They get in the boat and off they go. What does Jesus do? He dismisses the crowd. And the crowd dismisses. And where does he go? He goes up in the hills to be alone with his father to pray. Right? That's what happens. So he's up here praying. Doesn't say what he's praying about. But we know from other scripture texts the content of Jesus' prayers. We know he's talking to his Abba Father. We know in John 17, we see Jesus pray for himself. We see Jesus pray for his followers. We see Jesus pray for his enemies. We know Jesus is up here in the hill, away from his disciples, separated. But what is he doing? He's interceding with his father on behalf of his coming kingdom certainly to include his 12 disciples. And where are they? You know, four of them probably. (laughs) And the others are going, why can't they row faster? I mean, can you just hear the conversation in this boat? 12 men given the task to cross the lake. And guess what? There's wind. There's a windstorm. It doesn't say rainstorm. It says a windstorm. But I was, talking to, uh, a, I was talking to a friend this, this was a couple days ago, and he was telling me about a friend who was just in Israel and just was on a boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And while they were out there, a windstorm came up very quickly, and his friend said he was terrified. And I'm going, was this guy ever been in a boat? And he said, yeah. So here, modern day, 2018, somebody on a boat, in the middle, probably a much bigger boat that wasn't being powered by oars in the Sea of Galilee, who's terrified because of weather. So imagine, so here they are, they're, they're in the boat, and then the text says this. It, it says a couple things that are cool. Jesus sees them, and it's quite possible since it was a windstorm, not a rainstorm, that you can see really far. If you look you Google Sea of Galilee, you'll see some really cool panoramic photos when you're standing up on a hill. You know, you can see really, you can see across, see the mountains, you know. Sea of Galilee, Galilee is anywhere from four to eight miles wide, eight miles the long way, four miles the short way. So, but this is at night. It's another thing you need to realize. They're rowing at night. So they start rowing around 7.30, 8 p.m. at night to dusk. It gets dark. Jesus is up praying praying. 
at night with his father, which is not uncommon for him. He prayed all night before he chose the disciples. Why? Because he wanted God's pick. God, show me. Reveal to me who I need to pick. All night he prayed, then he chose. Do you pray all night before you make a major decision? Chuck, do you pray all night before you make a major decision? So he's praying. And then it says this. In the fourth watch of the night. Okay, what in the world's that? Fourth watch of the night. Okay, you know what the first watch of the night is? First watch of the night is from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. Second watch of the night is from 9 p.m. to midnight. Okay, I've caught most of the bedtime. Okay, 9 to 12. That's when you go to bed the second night of the watch. Third night of the watch, 12 to 3 a.m. Oh, man, I'm sawing logs then. 12 to 3, that's where I need to be. I'm, I'm ready to go to bed at 10. I didn't even do anything. I'm tired, ready to fall asleep. And if you have a conversation with me at 10, look out. I'm going to offend you because I'll probably fall asleep if I'm not moving. In the fourth watch of the night, this is between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. Now, assuming they started at 7 p.m., they have been rowing for seven hours. And where are they? They're halfway. They can see the other side. They're halfway. Well, it's nighttime. I don't know what they can see. So Jesus sends them alone without him onto the, into a boat, all 12, off you go, leads them into a windstorm where they are going to come undone and come to the end of themselves. Just imagine how irritated you'd be if you're one of the four professional guys. And all the whining and complaining and, and comparing and, well, I could do better. We'd be a lot. We'd already be there. If I, I don't know what's going on in that boat. But I know if you got 12 sinful men in a boat together for seven hours. Oh, my gosh. There's all kinds of conversation going on that's, I don't even want to hear. But I would know what to say in that conversation because I'm experienced at that. Talking, complaining, whining, bragging. So Jesus sees him. What does he do? Listen, Jesus sends him into the storm. He sees them in the storm. He has compassion for them in the storm. He goes to them in the storm. Do you see the bigger redemption story here? He came to us. He came to us was the song. He comes to his disciples in the middle of the storm. Now, apparently they're not afraid of the storm. Maybe this has something to do with the fact that they've been in a storm with Jesus before and the guy's sleeping. I, that's bizarre to me. I mean, does he have sleep apnea? What, what's the deal? How does a guy sleep in a boat in a storm where there's wind and waves? You know, is he on drugs? Is he just checking out of reality? You know, I mean, is, is he on some kind of medication? How does Jesus sleep in a boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee in a storm? This is a whole nother event. You know how, and a commentator said it this week, it really hit me, he said, the only way you can sleep in a boat in a storm is number one, if you're willing to admit that you're tired. And I loved that. That was like, I missed that part. It was like, I'm really tired. I need to take a nap. Who of you in here are ashamed to say that? You feel it every day, but you're ashamed to say, you know what? I got to stop. I know everybody else is working. I got to stop for a half an hour, 45 minutes. Just give me, I got to, Jesus took a nap. Why? Because he was tired. When should you take a nap? When you're tired. You should be emotionally healthy enough to tell someone, 
Well, maybe if you're at work and you're not allowed to sleep, that's another picture. But give yourself permission. When you get really tired, don't keep going and be irritable and be your ugly self to all the people you love that you're a take a break. Go take a nap. But you know why he was able to stay asleep in the storm? He was absolutely secure. Absolutely secure in the middle of the storm. So anyway, these guys, they know Jesus. Uh, They know that he had taught them some things when they'd been in a storm before. And even though he wasn't with them, and that was a different nuance here, he led them into a circumstance that was slightly different from the last time. We're at night. Ugh, unknown, dark, yikes. You know, can't see what's coming, what's under the water, how far do we have to go? Jesus isn't there. He's distant. He's not here. I can't see him. I can't touch him. He can't touch me. He's like up there. And, you know, so here, there you have it. What does he, and then he shows up. How does he show up? Boom, in the boat. Hi. <laughs> you know, um, listen, that's kind of how I feel. Orangewood is a boat, and in May, God called me and set me down inside your boat, Orangewood boat, and you guys have been rowing, and it's been six hours. You've been rowing, rowing. You're halfway there, end of May. You're exhausted. You're tired. Some of you are worn out. Some of you are irritable, and God sets me down in your boat. Boom, Chuck Bear. Ten years later, boom, here I am. And I've just been on sabbatical. I'm rested. I'm excited. I'm thrilled to be here. And you guys going, oh, what in the, why are, why would you, you know. (laughs) And that's why I'm preaching this sermon. This is so real to me. You are tired. You should be. You have been in a storm. From your head pastor on down. We're weary. It's dark. I can't see the other side. What's going to happen when we get there? I'm grieving. I'm hurting. I'm a little frustrated. I'm angry. (laughs) And I'm hungry. I'm hangry. (laughs) And then here, here I am. It's like, wow, this is really weird. But you know what needs to be done? Work. Row. Encouragement. Yesterday, I had this little bout of discouragement. I called my wife. I said, pray. I texted my wife, pray. She sent right back, praying. I'm like, I'm so glad. It's like, I'm in the boat with you now. It's not easy. It's windy. Headway, dark, angry crew, frustrated people. Guess who's going to show up? I know it. In fact, he's already here. Seems like he's not because he's up there. And we're here. He's up there. We're here. Duh. What's he doing? Same thing he was doing with these guys. Praying. Praying for what? Us. And then what does he do? He decides to show up with power in a new way. They've never seen him walking on water. That's bizarre. How do you walk on water? How do you change your molecular structure so you're less dense than water? How do you do that? Who can do that? And guess what? The wind hadn't stopped when he showed up. So he's like, I don't, I don't know. What does this look like? You know, he's like, whoa, it must have been so cool. And then was he glowing? I don't know. Was he, was some of his glory shining out? And, Cause they said, it's a specter. It's a ghost. How, how would they, I don't know. Maybe he was, maybe he was glowing a little bit. Maybe they had lanterns and they were going, 
Now they're terrified. I love it. Storm, no problem. Jesus coming. Ah! Wait a minute. Jesus is coming. Ah! Guys, Jesus loves you. He has you. He has me. He has us. Yes, he's coming. Will it terrify us? Sometimes. He will come in such a way that we're having a crisis, a crisis of character, a crisis of faith. We need you in a new way, and I've never seen you work in this way. Lord, are you going to come? Are you enough? Are you powerful enough? Of course he is. He changed water to wine. Do you know what that means? He created carbon just by thinking. He created an element. That's awesome. So Jesus walking on the water, they're terrified. What does Peter say? I love this. Peter says, and don't read Peter wrong here. Peter's not bragging. Peter is leading here. Because what does Peter do? He asks Jesus permission to come out on the water with him. He asks permission. What's he recognizing? Authority. He recognizes that if that's Jesus, if that's the I am. Oh, and what does Jesus say? He says, take heart, take courage. It is I. Eh. Know what it says? Ego a me in the Greek. What does that mean? I am. It says, take heart. I am. Don't be afraid. Why? Because I am. And I am here with you. Orangewood. I am is here with you. His spirit is in you. This is the guy that can command the wind, can heal the lame, can make the blind who are born blind see, can raise a dead person and you can come running in your grave clothes to Jesus. All he has to do is think it and it is. And then if he speaks, look out. And he gave you a whole book with his speaking. Pay attention to it. Prepare familiarize yourself with who he is and how he is so that when you're facing your storm, you're looking, you're feeling, and you're waiting to respond to Jesus. So Peter says, let me come out. He says, what does Jesus say? I love it. No rebuke, no, no, just come. And what does Peter do? He comes and he walks on water. And then you know the story. He takes his eyes off Jesus. He gets distracted by the wind. And it says in, in my version, it says he sees the wind. Eh, can't see wind. You can see the effects of the wind, right? What do you do? You look around your culture. You see the effects of sin and evil and wickedness. You go, ah. Are you coming undone? Remember the Lord of the storm. He knows your name. He sent you into your storms. Knowing your name, he can see you. He will come to you. He will show up in some way in his timing. Yes, I'm sorry. How long do we have to row? Seven out? Why not two? Two. I can hardly get one rowing in. One out. I'm glad I didn't have to row. I'm glad you guys rowed for me. I get to come down. Boom, Orangewood. Good. We're already halfway across because I can't row. You guys have been rowing. Well, I'll try. Give me the oar. Let's go. Let's do this together. In Christ, because Jesus is the Lord of the storm and he's here and he's come and he has plans for you. So here's the cool thing. Peter starts singing Jesus and what is he? He cries out. This is after they cried out in fear. Now Peter's crying out, Lord, save me. Good cry. Can I challenge you? Have you cried out recently? Not only have you gotten alone with God and spent some time with him, but when you're with him, do you cry out? 
cry out in heart desperation. Why? Because he's the only God, the only Savior, the only power that can handle what you're facing. Cry out honestly from your heart, from your head. Pour out to God. Do you do that? Will you permit yourself to nap? Will you permit yourself to come that undone with God, alone with him? Let alone with some other brothers and sisters in Christ. You may learn how to do that. That's sweet when you can get to that place and have that kind of boat crew to do life with. Telling you, your elders, getting some practice, crying out to God together, it's a good thing. It's healing and it's strengthening. You need to do it too and we need to do it with you. So Peter, Jesus lifts him up. They walk back to the boat on what? Water. Meanwhile, the other 11 are watching all this. And then Jesus gets in the boat. What happens when they get in the boat? Matthew says, the wind ceases. Not until they get in the boat. So, so Peter and Jesus are walking on the water. And then they get into the boat. Wind stops. Waves stop. Awesome. Then John says, and immediately the boat is at its destination. What? Immediately the boat is at its destination. They crossed half the Sea of Galilee. Instantly. How? Because he's the I am. He's in charge of space, time, matter, all of it. He's your father. Jesus is his son. Jesus is your true elder brother, your champion, your rescuer, your savior. And his spirit is inside of you. Why would we be afraid of trouble? Why would we be afraid of storms? You know why? Because there's still stuff Jesus would love to remove out of our hearts. Idols, fear, anxiety, all kinds of stuff. We're still in process and until we're glorified, we'll still need storms, right? So, wow, that's a story. No, it's true. It's history. It's real. That is so awesome. Okay, quick application. So listen, it's much to learn here. No way I could tell you all the things you could learn. I'm praying the Holy Spirit will take my feeble attempt and apply it to your heart. But let me point out just a few things. Number one, Jesus. He is the Lord of storms. He's the Lord of life. He defeated death. He defeated sin and the power of sin and death. He is the Lord. The Lord. Capital L-O-R-D. Master. King. Ruler. Authority. Capital A. He is my Avenger, capital A. So what does he do, these storms? He puts us in unusual, immense communal needs with scarce resources sometimes. He puts us in situations where the, the need is so great it's blowing my mind and crushing my spirit. I don't know if I can handle it. I certainly don't have the resources. He puts us in those situations so that we'll turn to him and ask him, what is my role here? What can I do here? How can I move my hands and feet and tongue in order to help here, Lord? I have no re- I'm scared. I am a scarce resource unless you come and show me what to do. And then sometimes he puts us in small community and he says, do this task. Cross this lake, disciples. And you think you actually have it in your wheelhouse. You think this is my area of expertise. I will shine in this task. And what do you do? You fail. You don't understand your dependency on God until you fail in your area of greatest expertise. Not my quote, but I love it, and I can't remember who said it, but I'm going to say it again. 
You don't understand your dependency on God until you fail in your greatest area of expertise. You mean God actually does that? He puts me in a situation where I'm going to fail? Yes. Why? Because why do you have that area of greatest expertise? Because God gifted you in that way. He enables you to serve that way. All right. So look, Jesus sends us into storms. Sometimes they're big. Sometimes they're small group. Sometimes they're very daily and they're very personal. And we think we've got to do it ourselves. So here's, here's the deal. Jesus, there he is. Praise for us, personally and collectively. Jesus sees us and feels compassion for our plight. So he comes and he helps us by coming to us. He knows your name. He knows your situations. He knows your woundedness. He knows your brokenness. He knows Orangewood. And he's all over it. He's all over us. He's got us. To accomplish his purposes, not yours, not mine, not the majority, not the minority. He's accomplishing his purposes in his church and in his people. Yes, and he will complete it. He will be successful, not us. We may have to learn by being unsuccessful how we need to depend on him to be successful in him. He prays for us, he sees us, he helps us, he comes he will absolutely get us to our destination. What is our destination? Where he wills you to be. Not where you want to be or where you think you should be. He will get you where he knows you need to be. And for some of us, that's to be freshly broken with great regularity so that you stay in touch with your insufficiency and your inadequacy and your weaknesses so that his power can be perfected in you and through you right? That's where the power is. It's him. Will you trust him? Will I trust him? And then here's the last application. Will you get up and get out of your boat? Will you get up and go? Go and make disciples. Cross the room, cross the building, cross the street, cross the city, Cross the sea. Go. Get up. Look at me. Listen. Follow me into need. Follow me into other people's brokenness. Why? Because they need power. I don't have any power, but I want to use you as a channel for my power. But you've got to be humble to be used. You've got to be broken to be helpful. When you have a crisis in your life, it's interesting that the, only the Christians who have been through the same kind of crisis know how to speak life into you. Sadly, most of us, when we try to speak life into someone in crisis, we're not a helpful voice because we're not coming from a place of brokenness and humility the way we're broken and humble. All right, and then lastly... Why do we get up and go to tell the tale? We live to tell the tale. Don't we love to tell stories of our hurricane stories? We all have hurricane stories. I got to share some with you. What does God want me to do? He wants me to tell my story of him rescuing me over and over and over again. He wants me to tell the tale. Why? So those can hear about Jesus and come to know him personally. Wow. That's what he wants. Live to tell your tale of the Lord of the storm for his glory and for his kingdom's sake. Pray with me. Father God, thank you. 
Thank you, thank you, thank you for being the Lord of our storms, for being the Lord of this unique storm here at Orangewood. But this storm at Orangewood is made up of many, 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 many other smaller storms and maybe even greater storms that we're not even aware of. Father, you're the Lord of the storms. You speak to the wind and the waves and they obey because you are the I am. Thank you, Lord that through your son Jesus, we, broken, sinful people, can know the Lord of the storm personally. Thank you that he came and did everything we could not do. He took the punishment for our sin on the cross, and he rose from the dead, proving that his payment was payment enough to cover our sin. And through faith in him, we get to run out of the grave and into your arms and into a life of purpose and sacrificial love and gracious life, extending truth and love and mercy and grace as we follow Jesus into the storms of this world. Thank you. Father, if there's someone who's yet to trust you, may they. May they turn to you and say, Lord, my life is a storm. It's a mess. Please come be the Lord of my storm. Come, come, call me out. Call me out of my mess. I will take that step and say, you are my master. You are my king. I trust in your authority. I come to you. I give you my heart and life. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that the gospel is true. We commit this to you. Thank you for being the Lord of the storm. We are secure, Orangeway. May we praise and glorify you at the deeper recognition that you are the Lord of all. In Christ's name.